Hello there, this is the Psychology Report, and good to have you with me again today. You are joining about 3,500 other people who listen to this program from time to time, and um, our audience is growing, so thank you very much, that's encouraging. Now, um, anxiety. Tonight I'd like to take a look at anxiety. You know, we live with anxiety. We all live with anxiety. Some of us live with a debilitating amount of anxiety. It's excessive. It's chronic. It's all the time. And it's self-generated. And it's generated as well by external events. So it's just overwhelming a person to the point that they cannot function, cannot make decisions, cannot uh, reach out into new activities or into new ways of life. And basically live a very cloistered life, a very restricted life, a very inhibited life, but one of great fear and intimidation. Other people live with mild levels of fear. It's enough to kind of create a motivation. It's enough to give them a cause to be concerned or to be careful or to be thoughtful or to be uh, just on the edge of, uh, of being deliberate, but yet being within the range of carefulness. And then there's, obviously, this is good because mild levels of anxiety are motivating. Mild levels of anxiety are uh, stimulating. They give energy and they give excitement and they give cause to engage in activities that will be successful, lead to success, if you will. So we want mild to low levels of anxiety, but we don't want the high-end levels of anxiety. But the other thing about anxiety is that we often create our own anxiety in the way we think. We have certain thought patterns that just generates anxiety. If you think about fearful objects and fearful events and fearful things that are going to happen to you, whether or not or whether they will or not is not the point, but you think they are, then you create a level of anxiety, a high level of anxiety, just by thinking that way. And if you don't have the skills of learning how to downturn the anxiety thinking, by stopping it or moderating it or slowing it down or taking it under caution. You're just going to live with anxiety all the time. That worrisomeness, that worrywart kind of behavior pattern, if you will. So a lot of people struggle with anxiety. Probably 20% of the population have anxiety to a point that it disrupts their life and causes problems and concern for them in their daily living. So if you have anxiety, you're not alone. But at the same time, it's not a good place to be. It's not a pleasurable place to be, and it's not a healthy place to be. People with anxiety generate more illness. People with anxiety generate more uh, inadequacy feelings and deprivation. People with anxiety feel more likely they're going to fail, and often do fail, because They think they're going to fail, so therefore they do. They don't try. It takes away the incentive. It takes away the joy. It takes away the pleasure from life for so many people. What is this idea about self-generated anxiety? What is that? How do you create anxiety for yourself? How do you stir it up? How do you stir the pot of anxiety, if you will? How do you create a lifestyle that is just anxiety-based? And you can't stop it, and you can't turn it around. You you can't somehow get your hands around it. So it just goes on and on and on to the point that it 
breaks down your body into ill health and it breaks down your body into unhappiness and breaks down your body into seclusion rather than social exploration and social involvement and socialization. Okay, let's take a look at that. What are some of the things that we do to create our own anxiety? Well, let's take a look at the way we think, okay? Some of us, and there are a lot of people, whose way of thinking is distorted because they think this way. This is what I should do. This is what I must do. I should, I should, I should. And there's this kind of sense of perfectionism, this sense of, of, of obligation that they're supposed to behave in a certain way. They're supposed to be righteous. They're supposed to be pure. They're supposed to be above board. They're supposed to be living a life of honor and integrity and an example for others. And they should behave in a certain way because they've been told that. Maybe by their father, maybe by their mother, maybe by certain teachers, maybe by certain ministers. Who knows in their life in the past. They give them that sense of what they should do and how they should think and how they should behave and how they should develop a given lifestyle. And if you live with that kind of sense of should, you're putting yourself in a real bind and a real pressure because if you have to live up to it, how can you live up to something that you should do all the time when in fact the rest of the world would say, yeah, it's good, but it's not necessary. It's not essential. So you have to kind of rethink that a little bit in terms of you know, when you hear your word, when you hear you're saying the word should, this is what I should do, just stop yourself and just say, now, wait a minute, I don't think I should do that. It'd be good if I did it. I might want to do it. It might be good to do it sometimes, but not all the times. It isn't a matter of should. It's just a matter of it's a good behavior, find when it's appropriate, and engage in that behavior when it's appropriate, not all the time because of somebody telling you this is what you should be. This is how you should behave. This is how you should think. This is how you should act. Okay, shoulds. Get them out of your life. Get them out of your life. When you hear yourself saying should, stop yourself and then rephrase your statement. Okay? Number two, catastrophizing. You know, we're, we're, a lot of people are good for that. We just, we're, we're ill, but we express it in terms of we're going to die. We have a panic attack, but we think we're just going to die from that panic attack, faint and have a heart attack and have a stroke. And that's not the case at all. It doesn't happen with panic attacks. So when we have little anxiety, we have small amounts of anxiety, people who catastrophize just see that the anxiety is going to be overwhelming and it's just going to do them in. And they're not going to be able to ever come back from that state of anxiety. We call these people drama queens. They just overstate they overbelieve. They over-involve themselves in illness or in some uh, catastrophe that's going to happen. When in fact it's not a catastrophe. It may be a, a negative event. It may be an unpleasant event. It may be an unwanted event. But it isn't the end of the world. You say, stop that kind of thinking. Stop the catastrophizing. You just don't need that. You see, things are not all awful. <laughs> That's how the catastrophizing person thinks. Everything's awful, awful, awful. No, things are not awful. Some things might be, but not everything, not much. Very few things are awful. Sure, they're disturbing and distressing and unwanted and uh, upsetting to you, but don't catastrophize. Don't take it to that nth degree of where you're going to just die because of this event. 
that's happened to you or this illness that has come to you, this headache that you have or whatever it might be. See it for what it is. Moderate your thinking. Replace your thinking with moderate thoughts. Replace your statements and your projections with moderate projections. It isn't the end of the world. It might be an unhappy time for you for a while. Maybe for not a couple hours it's going to be unhappy or maybe it's going to be difficult for you for a couple hours. But that's not for the whole day or the whole week or the whole month or the whole year or for life. Okay, number three, mind reading. You know, we all engage in mind reading. We think that we know what other people think of us. <laughs> you know, that's a disturbing and depressing situation to be in. It's what you think other people think of you. That's mind reading. Why don't you ask them? Why don't you find out? You know, in research that has been done that way, where we really do check it out, people don't think what you think they think of you. You see? We are mind reading. We go way ahead of ourselves, and we project ourselves into something that is not true at all. We may think that people don't like us, when in people may have a kind of maybe a moderate opinion of us. Maybe they have a good opinion of us. But we live out of that fear and that anxiety and we take it to a nth degree. And when we mind read, we go way beyond reasonableness and, de and determine what the world really is like and what other people really do think and what really is going to happen to us. You know, when you're in work situations, you might say, well, my supervisor really doesn't like me. Or you're coming up for a job evaluation and you say, Oh, my supervisor is going to just blow it out of water. I'm not going to do well at all. He doesn't like me. Well, that's mind reading. How do you know that? But you live on that anxiety then until it's dispelled. So it's, it's not a good way to live. If you see yourself mind reading, if you see yourself determining what other people think and what other people are going to say and what other people are going to do because you, might, you read their minds, stop it. You're not a mind reader. You never went to the school for mind reading. You say you don't read palm, you don't read tea leaves, and you don't read expressions on people's face. You just don't do that. And you just calm it down, relax it, and replace it with the idea of the saying, I'm not sure what my supervisor thinks of me. He might not think very well of me because and so and so. But maybe he's okay with that. So I'm gonna just give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, talk to yourself, talk yourself out of reason to be more reasonable in terms of this idea of mind reading. You don't need to project truth into somebody else when it isn't even their idea at all. Okay, that's mind reading. What about forecasting? You know, that's another kind of disturbed way of thinking, irrational way of thinking. You know, a disturbing way of thinking is forecasting. You know, it's the idea that you project what's going to happen to you. You're going to go in for an evaluation at your job and you think, oh, I'm going to get fired. See, that's forecasting. Or he's going to demote me. Or he's not going to give me a raise. You see, you're forecasting. What's going to happen? And how do you know that? How do you know what the forecast really is? You see? It's like weather forecasting. Well, there may be some truth to it, but it isn't always the truth. Moderate that. Calm down. Slow it down a little bit. You don't need to project what's going to happen to you. Because what we usually do 
is project the worst possible thing that's going to happen to us. Of course, we hope that it won't happen, but we live with that for a period of time, maybe for a day, maybe for a week. You know, the very worst possible thing that's going to happen, that's what we do when we project and we forecast. We always forecast the worst possible outcome, the worst possible uh, result. So when you take a test, when you take an examination, oh, I did horrible, I'm going to fail, I'm not going to... My life is all over and it's ended and so on and so on and so on. That's forecasting. And you create this sense of anxiety, this sense of fear, this sense of defeatism in yourself. You see? Okay, here's another one. Feelings. You use feelings as if they were facts. You know, feelings are not facts at all. Feelings are feelings. Facts are facts. To buy a car, there are facts. The color of it, the shape of it, the uh, motor, how many miles per hour it gets in gas whether it's an economic car, whether it has a lot of repair possibilities, you know, those are facts. But the feelings about buying a car is that kind of feeling, it gives me a good feeling when I'm around a red car. Or I don't like red cars because I have a fear of red cars. I had an accident one time with a red car, and I don't like red cars. See, those are feelings. Now, you can make a decision on the base of your feelings, but not only on the base of your feelings. You need to make your decision on the base of facts and a little feeling, you say. A little feeling. Line up your facts first. And then consult your feelings in terms of how you feel about this and how you feel about being in that kind of a present. If you're looking for a new job, you're being interviewed, look at the facts. What it, what it is like to work for that particular company? Do you like the company? Do you like the people? Do you like the product? Do you feel good about the location and the uh, company attitude and atmosphere and their value system and their uh, mission statement and all that kind of That's all facts. But the feeling is, does it give you a sense of confidence? Does it give you a sense of achievement? Does it give you a sense of joy, you know, to work in a place like that? That's feeling. You can add your feelings, but get your facts lined up, you know, as well. Okay. Because if you don't put your facts out there, you're going to have a lot of anxiety if you only base your decisions on your feelings. Okay? Here's another one. Labeling. You know, we're good at labeling. You know, you, you take a test, you fail it, or you didn't do as well, you got a C maybe rather than a B or an A, and you say, I'm an idiot. You know, I just can't do this. This is beyond me. I'm a failure. You know, I just I can't, I can't handle this. This is not me. So we, we label ourselves into some kind of an anxiety uh, corner, if you will, we can't get out of. It's the idea of labeling yourself to the point that you don't even like yourself. Why should other people like you when you label yourself as an idiot? You label yourself as a real jerk. You label yourself as a person who has no uh, common sense or no ability to solve a problem or think it through or to communicate or to engage in conversation or whatever. And you just label yourself by a person who just say, I am just that way. This is the way I was born. I'm just not good on my feet. I'm, I'm, I'm not a reader. I don't read. I'm not a That's a label. Well, because you can learn to read, and you can read even if you don't like to read. Even you can read if you have never read. So that you can learn a new behavior pattern. Stop the labeling. When you say, I am dot, 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 you're labeling yourself. And you're putting yourself in a corner. You're putting yourself in a, in a bad light. Why do you want people to think of you in the context of some kind of a label that you put on yourself, you see? And then, lastly, polarization. Polarization is kind of a tough way to think, you know, as well. 
It's like perfectionism, you say. When you say, look, I should never be late. It's wrong to be late. Well, that's polar. That's either you're late or you're early. Well, it's okay to be early and it's okay to be late at times. There are a few things you can't be late to, but most things you can be late without it having a negative and disrupting and a deteriorating effect on you. Okay. You know, being late one minute, being late five minutes, being late ten minutes, you know, you can apologize for that and you can roll that. Now, if you're a person who's always late, that's a different story. But there are circumstances that sometimes just make yourself late to an engagement or to an appointment. And you just have to apologize and you have to explain and then you move on. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. It doesn't take the appointment away. It doesn't say that you can't have a good experience, you see. So be careful when you polarize and you just say it's either this way or that way. You have to be on time or you have to be early or you, to, you cannot be late. You see? That's not the way that people think or should think. Because it creates anxiety then. You say that I can never be late and then you're late. You're really under a great deal of you know, anxiety. So let me give you four things you can do when you get into these anxious states because you're doing some stinking thinking, some pretty negative thinking and some pretty self-defeating thinking, okay? You've talked yourself into anxiety, basically. I can get out of it. Okay, learn how to relax. Relax your muscles. Relax your muscles of your upper body, the chest, the shoulders, the face, the neck, the arms, the shoulders, the hands. Let them go slowly like rubber bands that's been stretched to their limit and now you're going to let them go and just relax just let go just let go use the word calm say some words to yourself like the word calm or the word tranquility or the word peace or the word still be still let some of those words prevail and overcome some of that negative thinking that you have okay okay number two do some thought stopping do some thought stopping when you get into all this negative thinking, stop yourself and say, stop, stop, stop. Just stop yourself. And then rephrase it. Reframe it. Say it differently so that you can understand it and it's more calm and it's more relaxing and it's more agreeable to you, if you will. Okay? Don't go on with that thinking. If that you get caught in that negative, anxiety-based thinking, stop it. And make sure that you alter it. Replace that thought or that type of thinking right away. Okay? And then you need a reality check. You need somebody that you can say, am I making sense out of this? Is this the way you see it? Is this correct? Is this really true? Is this something that I really need to rethink? Is this the way, I, is this the way that everybody else thinks that I am thinking the same as everybody else? Or people think differently than I do. People see it differently than I do. What do you think? Ask people. Ask your spouse. You know, ask your good friend. Ask your children. You know, ask people you work with. Get somebody that it could be a nice reality check for you so that when you are doubtful and you're into an anxiety type of thinking, check it out with somebody. Don't let yourself go on as if it's true when in fact it really may not be true at all. You see? Irrational thinking is a way of sneaking up on us and we can sometimes believe the truth of irrational thinking <laughs> and the irrational thinking is not true it should not be taken as truth it should be taken as a falsehood it should be taken with doubt and with with due consideration okay so and then lastly just rethink things 
replace it. Write out a statement that is just ridiculous. You know, just say, I'm an idiot. But rewrite that into a different phrase and how you would express that by saying, in this particular activity, I don't do as well as I do in other activities. Okay? Now, that's, you're not an idiot at all. You're being able to say that there are some things you don't do as well. That's true. But there are things you do very well. That's true also. Okay? So do some replacement thinking or some corrective thinking. Take your irrational thinking and make it rational. Have somebody help you make a statement that's more rational from something that is very irrational. You see? So that you can live and you can enjoy life but without all that anxiety that you just bring upon yourself and just impose upon yourself. And then anxiety over a long period of time can obviously lead to depression. You get that sense of hopelessness or that sense of helplessness. When you have anxiety over and over for long periods of time and it's chronic, you get that sense you'll never get beyond it. You'll never get over it. You'll never control your anxiety. And when you get that sense, you get, get, you get depressed because that sense of hopelessness there, that sense of helplessness, you know, that's there. And that's, that's defeating. That's discouraging. And that often then leads to more defeat and the lack of success and lack of achievement. So in other words, anxiety is true. It comes from a lot of sources. We have generated a kind of a lifestyle of anxiety, some of us. Some of us have been born in a genetic pattern where there's a proneness to anxiety and a proneness to the brain to overreact and to act very strongly under certain circumstances. Some of us have learned experiences, have had trauma experiences, and when you re-experience re that trauma, you go into that trauma situation again, you're going to feel anxiety. Anxiety is part of our life. But you know, don't bring it upon yourself by thinking about it all the time and doing, engaging in that kind of stinking thinking behavior, that irrational kind of thinking. That part you can control. That part you can get beyond. And you can reduce your anxiety considerably. Engage in the relaxation. Engage in, engage in thought-stopping kind of behavior. Engage in replacement thinking. But get somebody to help you be your reality check, okay? Hey, nice to have you with me today. And um, this has been the Psychology Report, obviously. And let me just once again bring you to the attention of the Pompeii Disease and the Pompeii, United Pompeii Foundation. The United Found Pompeii Foundation It was formed to raise funds to help families that have children with the Pompeii disease, which means they cannot develop the muscles of their lungs and of their mid-body, and they're very vulnerable to early death. And uh, the medication that they require is extremely expensive and not available everywhere. So some of these kids either go without or they have to travel great lengths to be given the medication that they really do need. So go to the website, United Pompeii Foundation. Look it up. Read about Pompeii disease. Learn about it a little bit. But you know what? Send them some money. Send them a few bucks. Send them quite a bit of money if you can. But it would, it's a great cause, and it's for these kids that just really need some help in their life at this time of uh, near-death kind of experience, if you will. And a lot of these kids live with a lot of you know, anxiety as well because their future is really unknown. But it's pretty bleak. So um, they need your help. They need your support. And go ahead and send some bucks to them, okay? Now, next Saturday, coming up. First Saturday in, April, in, in May. First Saturday in May. 10 o'clock in the morning. 
Pacific Standard Time. Tune in to Central Valley Talk. And there you will catch my TV program online on Dr. Teach Me to Parent. And I'll be discussing a lot of the parenting skills that are needed today in working with our children. We'll look at divorce parents and some of the issues related to divorce and how you handle these kids at that time in your life. And we're going to look at the DNA of a positive family. What are positive families like? What's the DNA of a you know, good, good family? And we're just going to look at some of the ways that parenting can be very positive and very uplifting and very helpful you know, to children. So centralvalleytalk.com, centralvalleytalk.com, next Saturday, 10 o'clock in the morning, Pacific Standard Time. Join me. Nice to talk to you today, and we'll be in touch. Bye for now.